Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. When your uh, congregation is one-third children, the place empties out a lot after the kids leave us, and so it feels very different in the room, doesn't it? If you are new to our church, uh, just joining us, my name is Dave, and I serve as one of the pastors here at Harvest And we've been working our way through a short series on the parables of Jesus. And I really, really like the parables because they hit upon the way I process the world. I think in terms of analogies and stories, that's how I make sense of anything, is I need to know what is it like. And once I figure out what it's like, then I begin to understand it, and I can go on from there. And so I appreciate that Jesus um, really taught very often in this form, and it speaks to my heart. I'm also grateful for the Apostle Paul, who didn't have any time for stories. He just told it like it was, and he gave you nice outlines and principles, and I think we need both sides of teaching in the kingdom. I want to read for you today from Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30, and 36 to 43. It says this, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn." Skipping a few verses ahead there. And then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. And the Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. That's the word of God. It might be a familiar story to you, but I hope that we can bring out for you uh, some really important truths that you may not necessarily see the first time you read that parable. In the, the entire realm of fiction, it seems like every story is built on this one premise that there is this great struggle between two sides. Good or evil, the bad guys and the good guys, there seems to be presumed that in everything, 
in every good story, there is conflict between two sides. You've got superheroes and you've got supervillains. Imagine how boring comic books would be if there was just a bunch of real super-powered guys in, in tights and nothing bad ever happened. Nobody ever tried to take over the world. They just fly around all day and start campfires for, for Boy Scout troops. and so what, what would they do if there weren't conflict? Who knows what this is? Where are my nerds at? Well, say it out loud. Yeah, this is the Rebel Alliance and the Galactic Empire from Star Wars. Usually you see Darth Vader and Yoda. But you know, this is another one of those epic struggles in, in these conflicts between two opposing forces. And we presume this of everything. In fact, when you take a literature course, the teacher will tell you, and this shocked me at first, every good story has conflict. And I paused and thought about that because I, I remember growing up reading children's books and there was no conflict. There was just, but it's actually true that in every interesting story, there has to be an element of conflict. This is true of reality. Uh, this is true of fiction because it's true of reality. I think the reason that these stories ring true is because in our own lives, we understand very clearly that life doesn't just leave us be. That in the midst of a world filled with lots of pretty good people, there are some pretty evil people too. And that's not fashionable to say anymore. We don't have evil people. We just have people who are misguided or people who make mistakes or people whose difference of opinion or views are, are different from ours. But the truth is, and I'm, I'm coming to see this more and more, there really is such a thing as evil on the earth. There are people whose behavior and beliefs and conduct are such that there's no sound, reasonable explanation. Why would anyone do this? Why would anybody ever act like this? And there's really only one explanation, that in the midst of what we generally see as decent people, there is this force at work in reality called evil, and it has tremendous power over the human heart. And so in chapter 13 of Matthew, Jesus tells seven parables, seven stories, and they're all tied together by the theme of the kingdom of God. Really, these are stories about how reality works. They are not just stories about the Christian faith or what he calls the kingdom of heaven, but they are ultimately stories that describe for us how the whole universe, reality itself, actually works. And what he says is this kingdom that God is building, this kingdom of people who are not just good people, but they are God's people, multiplying his presence in the world, doing the things that he calls them to do. This kingdom he's initiating is not unopposed. We have this naive view of the world that really we're just people. Everybody's just, just squirrels trying to get a nut and live and let live and just don't shove your views down my throat. And why can't we all just get along? We have this idea, this really naive, childish idea that that's how life works. But the reality is that God's kingdom is actively opposed by another kingdom. That doesn't mean you have to think about people's heads spinning 360 and shooting pea soup and projectile vomit. That's not the expression of the other kingdom. But there is this reality that God's purposes don't march forward in the world unopposed. Do you know that's true? Every married couple tries to make it work. They, they stand at the altar to have a happy ever after. 
But we all know from our own experience and the experiences of those we care about that it doesn't always work out that way in true life, does it? That sometimes in the midst of trying to keep a family together, someone tears a family apart. In the midst of trying to keep societies together, businesses functioning, somebody steals, somebody kills. And you ask that question, why does this happen? Jesus is telling you, I'll tell you why this happens. Because the people who love God and live for Him do not live on this world unopposed. But there is this struggle we all recognize in fiction and in real life. We have to acknowledge it theologically. This kingdom of God does not exist by itself. It exists side by side in constant struggle with what Jesus calls the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of the evil one. Let me paraphrase this parable quickly for us so that we don't get bogged down in the details because it's the one, one of the few parables where Jesus himself explains it. And I just crack up reading commentators who are, uh, are just you know, pontificating left and right about what could all this mean? I think, and Jesus in some very clear ways told us, no, you don't get to say what each character in this story is. I'm telling you already what it is. I've actually read commentaries that were counter to what the, the, Jesus' own explanation of the parable is. And so I'm not as fancy or as smart as all those guys. I'm a simpleton. I'm going to just point out what I believe Jesus said in the story. And we'll start with that. I'm going to take it on faith that that's what he meant. In this story, a man who's a landowner, a farmer, plants some good seed. Presumably, he's growing wheat in this field. That's a good thing to grow when your diet depends on breads. And so um, so he's growing wheat. But in the middle of the night, this is when most bad things happen, sneaking around under cover of darkness, not wanting to be discovered. That should be a signal unto itself that something is messed up. But in the cover of night, an enemy comes, and he plants weeds in the middle of his field enemy's field. Now, this was an actual crime that took place in the ancient world of Jesus' day. It was, in fact, so common a crime that the Roman government had a specific law outlawing this because people would do this out of spite or vengeance. Oh, yeah? Well, we'll see how much you like it when you wake up tomorrow and your entire crop is riddled with parasitic weeds. And the reason you do this is to devalue or destroy somebody else's crop. And it would create devastation. For a lot of the ancient farmers, the difference between poverty and stability was one crop away. And so when you do this to somebody, it's not just a gag or a prank. It's a serious crime. And somebody intended in this story to do great harm to the work and the cause of the landowner who is in this story. Now, the Greek word that's used here for this weed is zizanion. We now identify that with something that some people call tares or others call a a variation of darnel. In the general term, it's referred to as false wheat. The scientific name is, let me see if I can get this right, lolium temelentum. Here's what it looks like. You can see why this would be a problem. Because in the early stages of growth, the two plants look almost identical. If someone said to you, I want you to run through a packed field full of crops and separate the stuff that looks like the left from the stuff that looks like the right, you'd be like, I don't have that much time in my life. They look so similar, you just kind of look at it and go, well, and even if you can distinguish them, their root systems are so intertwined that by pulling one up, you're likely to pull up something else that you don't want to kill. 
And so this is why it was such a bad crime, is that once you did it, it was an almost irreversible kind of damage. Those two things are indistinguishable and are going to exist side by side until the crops reach maturity. And then one of them reveals themselves to be true wheat because what do we eat in the wheat? You don't eat the stalk, you don't eat the leaves, you don't eat the... What you eat is the heads of grain on the top. That's the only part we're interested in is... You just want to eat that part. And so at the end, the wheat gloriously sprouts heads of wheat, the grains you want to eat, and the other stuff just kind of be like, well, we're almost there. We got most of the appearance intact, but the part that's really needed is missing. The part for which a farmer grows a crop is absent in the one crop versus the other. Now, the landowner's servants wake up in the morning. Somebody should have probably been posting guard, but that's a different story. And they say, Master, we have a problem. This is like that early morning phone call where someone goes, hey, we got a problem. You're like sort of excited and really scared at the same time. Oh, this is not going to be good. What's going on? And someone say, oh, the basement's flooded with water or whatever. You know, uh, The government just changed the laws and we're really up a, a creek. This is that kind of call. And they say, well, somebody discovered tons of weeds mixed in with all our wheat. What are we supposed to do? And the subtext seems to be, Master, are you just not a good farmer? Like, I thought you planted good seed. Did you not read the package well? Did you try to save a little money and get some blended mix? What's going on? And what the landowner in the story says, no, I'm not an idiot. I know what I planted, but an enemy did this. I wasn't negligent, I wasn't stupid, but I have an enemy who is out to get me, and though I planted good seeds in the field, his mission in life is to destroy my work. Everything he's motivated by is the opposite of what I'm trying to accomplish in my world. And so what Jesus is saying in this particular part of the story is, God has an agenda, and he has great power, and he starts the field growing, but he has an enemy whose sole objective it is to destroy the work of God in the same field. And thankfully, he identifies for us what every part of the story is. He tells us himself with his own words, let me tell you what each character represents. The one who sows the good seed is God himself. It's me. And the field is not the church. It's not something else. It's the whole world. He's not talking about one subset of people. He's talking about reality itself, the entirety of the human race, and all of us existing together. And then he says, the one who sows the weeds is the devil. In other words, we explain the presence of these things because God is opposed by an actual enemy. And then he says there are two kinds of crops in this field. There are the sons of the kingdom, which represent the wheat, and there are the sons of the evil one, which are the weeds. Now, like any kingdom, kingdoms take on the character and agenda of their king, don't they? And so you can understand that the kingdom of heaven will, if it's played out correctly, start to resemble what God is like. It will carry out the things God stands for. It will push forward the things that God values. That's the way it is. When you get to be king and unopposed in your authority, you get to create the kind of household or nation or company that you want. One of the things I've really valued about our story at Harvest is I didn't have to step into an inherited ministry. We began this ministry together in 1995 and got to forge the culture from start. 
We didn't have to fix a lot of bad habits, unlearn a lot of history. We got to decide together one day what kind of church we're going to be and build a culture together. That's been one of the great joys of pastoring this church. Excuse me. And so that's the beauty of when you get to run something is that it starts to look like you. It starts to reveal what you're like. So the kingdom of God is all about the mercy of God, the great love of God, the righteousness of God, the justice of God. Whenever you see those things happening, it's a reflection, an echo of the way that God wants the human race to experience life. And when you see these things not happening, you know, for example, truth is a big part of what God's kingdom stands for. Thank you. And in general, you should be able to take somebody at their word. It'd be nice if when someone shakes your hand and says, I'll be there, that they're going to be there. That's the kingdom of God, is that when a person says a thing, it is what they really mean, and they will keep that word. Words like, I do. I will. I promise. I'll pray for you. Whenever we backpedal, whenever we lie, whenever we misrepresent the truth, whenever out of fear or cowardice we reverse what we said, that is not the kingdom of God. That is another kingdom vying to mess up the work of God. And none of us are immune to that. None of us. It happens every day. There are two kingdoms always vying in every aspect of our lives. And one kingdom looks like God, and the other kingdom, what does it look like? It looks like the one who spawned it. It looks like the enemy of God. It's a kingdom that is driven by pride and the love of self, the desire to bring glory and attention to oneself and not to God. It's a kingdom driven by selfishness. By desire to please oneself and meet every demand, every desire of the heart without regard to what it will cost others or what it will do to us. It's also a kingdom driven by the spirit of freedom and independence, but really a distorted freedom and distorted independence. It's a kingdom that's driven by a desire to be free of the oppressive authority of God to say, you are not the boss of me. I don't want to be indebted to anyone. Not God, not you. I want to only be answerable to myself. And I resent this idea that I would have to worship someone or to be obligated to someone or to bow my knees to someone, to prioritize somebody else before myself. And so the kingdom of this world is driven by the things that are very opposite the kingdom of God. There is no resemblance between the two kingdoms. These are not two kingdoms built sort of like Mac OS X Snow Leopard or Mountain Lion and OS X Mavericks. Okay, It's not that incremental and underwhelming a change. We're talking about like completely incompatible systems. One kingdom is going one way and the other kingdom is going completely the other way. Now here's an interesting thing that, that Jesus points out in the story. That in this field, which is by his own admission representing the whole world, there are only two crops in this entire field. He doesn't talk about barley or, or rice or rhubarb or avocados. There is only the two crops. There are either wheat or weeds. That's it. And here's what I think the point he's trying to make. That there is no neutrality in life. 
There's no straddling. There's nobody who gets to be a spiritual Switzerland and say, well, you know, I don't want to get involved in that whole deal with religion and right or wrong. I'm just going to be me. I'm just going to be myself. I don't want to pick sides. You're going to pick a side whether you intend to or not because there is no third crop in this field. You are either a son of the kingdom of God or a daughter or you are a child of the kingdom of the evil one. It's not like you get to self-identify. You are, as you look at yourself, going to discover you are either one or the other. And this is one of the key points of the parables. It's not about deciding which you want to be. It's figuring out what you actually are. I have a dog at home who believes for all her life that she's a cat. There's nothing she does that distinguishes her behavior from that of a cat. I'm waiting for her to cough up her first hairball. This, this dog never once acted like a dog, acts like a cat. Does that make her a cat? Absolutely not. You are what you are, not just what you believe yourself to be, what you claim to be. There's such a thing as reality, truth. I know what I am, and if I'm honest, I'll look and see it. And what God says in this parable is, you don't get to kind of pick sides and identify with one. You are either a son and daughter of one kingdom or a son and daughter of the other kingdom. This is probably the defining layer of our identities. Which kingdom do we belong to? And as God and his enemy vie in this world, there's no mystery who's going to win, but the struggle is very real. It touches every aspect of our lives. And the operating question is, which side do you find yourself on time and time again? Which kingdom is growing in you? And which kingdom are you growing as you observe your real life? Keep in mind that Jesus told these parables to these growing massive crowds who are very interested in in following him as admirers and fans. And he's giving one of those crowd reduction sermons where he says, look, I'm glad you all dig me, but do you think you maybe misunderstand what I'm about? I'm not here to create a fan club or a large following. I'm here to divide reality square down the middle with a machete, cut it in half and let you know there is this and there is that. That's so important for our culture in our generation because everything is gray to us. Everything is 50 shades of gray. Everything is nuanced. Everything is on a spectrum. Please don't come at me with your black and white nonsense. Everything is a matter of degrees. No, it's not. It absolutely is not. There is either what you are or what you are not. And Jesus now is not allowing for this, this fluid spectrum to exist But he's saying, this is reality, and you are either with me or you are against me. That's how it works. I don't know why we insist on creating all these third options that God never talks about, because we can't accept the truth, but that's the truth. And he takes this this butcher's knife, and he cleaves reality right down the middle, and says, you're going to have to decide which one of these sides you actually are on. And stop pretending that the two sides can ever be made to get along. God doesn't have a frenemy. He has an enemy. He's never felt good and fuzzy about Satan. He doesn't get duped by Satan because Satan goes, Oh, God, I'm I'm sorry about before. Can I just borrow 50 bucks? You know, God isn't fooled. He knows every day, every hour what his enemy is about and what he's after. 
And so he's calling these crowds, make up your minds as you hear me. I'm not preaching this to inform you, but to call you to a decision and a point of identification. That's why Jesus gave the story in the original audience. That's why he gives it to us. So I want to close with some practical implications. What does that mean for us? If this is the way God is describing reality, what then for us? What are we supposed to make of that? How do we respond? Well, the first thing I think we have to do is be born again. If life and reality are divided into two kingdoms, then I think the first clear implication is we must be born again. Look what he says. He describes the crops as sons. Why would he do that? Because sons aren't manufactured or brought home from the sun store. They are born. They are conceived and they are delivered. It speaks to the fact that the kingdom of God is not which belief system you agree with. It's not which religion you check off on the census survey. It is something that is done in you. We don't become Christians because we adopt the right lifestyle or believe the right beliefs. We don't make ourselves Christians or become Christians. We are made Christians by a new birth. That if that doesn't happen, then you will strive to become mimickers of a religious system without the prerequisite life-gaining event happening in you. We become something like zombies who mimic the movements of the living but don't have the spark of life. Have you ever in church and in your Christian journey felt exactly like when you watch The Walking Dead, you see yourself spiritually and religiously? That's exactly how I feel. I can do all the stuff they do. Bread, wine, bulletin, offering. But somewhere inside, it's never once made you feel alive. If that's the case then maybe you're operating on a misunderstanding of what makes a person a Christian from the start. It's not cultural. It's not because your parents brought you to church all your life. We become Christians when God makes a dead heart come to life. And that's why we are called to be born again. Listen to what Paul said in the beginning uh, part of his, his uh, letter to the Ephesians. We w- one, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in whom? The sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What Paul is adding to Jesus' parable is this. Every one of us was born into the sons as sons of the evil one. Every one of us, when we were born, were born a weed. And somewhere along the way, God picked us up, pulled us out, and replanted us as wheat. In other words, it's a universal experience of the human condition to be born into the wrong kingdom. And that's why he says, if you want to be part of this kingdom, you can't just jump out and go, all right, I'm wheat now, everybody. You have to be reborn. Your very DNA has to be made different because you can't glue stick heads of grain to a darnel and make it into wheat. The weed is what it is because it can't help but be that. It is expressing its DNA. It has no choice. This is the right understanding of how a person becomes a Christian. And that's why Jesus, when he was speaking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus, told him, I tell you the truth, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. 
What Jesus is saying to Nicodemus is, I did not come to make bad people good. I came to make dead people alive. And if you are not reborn, none of this will ever be a part of you, and you will never be a part of it. There is something profound and inward that must happen to cause a dead heart that hates God to suddenly develop a capacity to love and long for God. And that's not something that you just choose to do. God does it in us. It is his work. It is to this very Nicodemus that Jesus spoke the famous words of John 3.16. That whoever believes in Christ, in other words, a part of this process of being born again is to place all of your faith, all of your trust and confidence in Jesus Christ and what he did for you on that cross and by his resurrection. It is in placing your full trust in him that you become born again so that something deep and profound and inward changes in us. So let me move on to a second practical implication. If we accept that a a part of being in the kingdom of God is to be born again or remade into something, that something dead will come back to life, then the second implication, I believe, is that we must submit to Jesus as king. Let me make the connection between those two ideas. How do you know if you're born again? How do you know? If I were to ask you, how do you know that you were born again? I mean, it's a very, very powerful and important question, but it's not one everybody answers easily. I love the way John Piper in his sermon, God's Great Mercy and Our New Birth, um, he, in this sermon, made a very interesting set of questions, and he explored this very thing. I just want to read it verbatim for you because I think it's ingenious. Here's what John Piper says. If I asked you, how do you know that you were born from your mother's womb, what would you answer? You would answer, I'm alive. I exist outside my mother's womb. I'm here, and that's right, and that is all the answer needed. You would not answer, I know I was born because I've got a birth certificate at home, or I know I was born because I did some historical research at a hospital in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and found a document with a little footprint on it that matches the curly lines on the bottom of my foot. Or I collected signed affidavits of three or four witnesses that saw my mother pregnant and soon after saw me in her arms. You would simply say, I know I was born because I am alive. But now suppose I asked an average evangelical churchgoer today, how do you know you were born again? How many would answer, because I am alive to God, I have a living hope, I have a living faith, I once had no spiritual life, and now I am alive spiritually with spiritual appetites and spiritual enjoyments. Once I was dead, and now I am alive in God. I know him, I love him, I trust him, I hope in him, I follow him. The proof that I was born again is my life today. How many rather would answer, I know I was born again because I did what you must do to be born again. I asked Jesus into my heart. I prayed to receive Christ. I walked down an aisle and accepted Jesus. I have a card here in my wallet that I signed on June 6, 1952, where I pledged that Jesus is my Lord. Do you understand what Piper is getting at? He's simply saying this. How do you know that you are a Christian? 
If Jesus said to Nicodemus, and he by extension says to us, you cannot be in my kingdom unless you are born again. You were born once, but you were born the wrong crop. If you want to be planted in my kingdom, you must be born again. So how do you know that that has happened? And there's this forensic way to answer it about all the mechanics of how you know, how you know, how you know. But the best proof is this. I know I was born again because I am alive again. I just look at my heart, my life, and I understand that there is something irrepressible in me that even on my worst days draws me towards God in desperate hope. I've given up on everyone and everything else, but I have not yet given up on God because I was once dead in that regard, dead to God. Debt to righteousness, debt to everything he stands for, but now I am irreversibly, terminally alive to him. I have no choice about the matter. I can't die inside because I have been reborn in Christ. That is how we know that the event has taken place. Is that the greatest proof of birth is life itself. And if you find that every day to be a Christian is a struggle with your culture, your morals, your values, your lifestyle, and somewhere inside you have yet to find, to discover this reserve, this pulsing life force that puts joy in your heart even when things aren't going well. If that hasn't happened, could it be that you became a Christian by following a cultural script, but a very profound, important event in your soul never actually happened. What's interesting is, both crops are permitted to grow side by side. And what Jesus says is, this kingdom is coming one day, there will be a harvesting, and make no mistake about it, you will not fail to tell the difference between the two crops. Look, right now, both crops are living side by side, even in this church, in our families, in our neighborhoods. We all cheer, most of us, for the Bears or whatever team that we are led by our hearts to cheer for. We all blow out birthday candles. We all want presents at Christmas. Even my Jewish friends like Christmas presents. Nobody doesn't like presents. We all want to be fit. We all want to live a long life. We all like to get promotions and raises. The truth is, there isn't that much difference in the way we experience life on the planet. It isn't like the sun shines on Christians and is cloudy for non-Christians. Do you understand that in this lifetime, the distinction between the kingdoms is an incremental thing. It's growing, but there will come a day when there will be no vagueness, no ambiguity about it at all. You will know for sure, as Jesus himself divides reality once again, that there are those who belong to him and there are those who did not. And there will not be a third category of confused people in between. That's the nature of the world we live in. And so you'll know which kingdom you are in, in part, by seeing what is growing in you and what you are growing in. It's simple. At some point, every fetus looks the same. Have you ever seen those websites that show you an alligator fetus or or embryo? Not fetus, that's the wrong medical term. The alligator embryo, the zebra embryo, the giraffe embryo, the human embryo. You're like, oh my gosh, we're all the same thing. 
it isn't until later that something differentiates. You're like, oh, now that's not a person anymore. That tail is way too long. It's either a very unfortunate person or it's some other creature altogether. But early on, we all look the same, but there's a point coming where it's unmistakable. Oh, oh, okay. I know what I am now because look at me. I claim to follow God. I put my kid in a wana, but I, my highlight of the year is when I ditch the kids and go to Vegas and no one knows what happened. It's the best part of my whole year. It's the only part that makes me feel alive. I'm high-fiving everybody. I can't sleep at night leading to that moment because the truth is that's the only time I actually feel alive. I feel proper at church. I feel decent at church. But I don't feel alive at church. I feel alive whenever I'm doing the stuff everybody else loves doing. Those are the times I feel like myself. And that's how we begin to understand that maybe you got labeled with the wrong label when they were labeling crops. What is growing in you and what are you growing in? Here's another wrinkle to it. Paul writes in his letter to the Corinthians, there was a time when we were still pagans and we were completely under the influence of dead, speechless idols. But now the Holy Spirit of God lives in us. He possesses us. He influences us. And he says the only way we can know for sure that's happening is we're able to say Jesus is Lord. It's one of the distinguishing marks. And I don't think Paul's naive enough to say if you can say the words. A Satan worship can utter the words Jesus is Lord. He just won't mean it one bit. What he's saying is will your life say it as well? Can you honestly say at this low moment of your life and yet... Jesus has not stepped off his throne. That's never been in question for me. The lordship of Christ, his supremacy in my life, his unquestioned authority has been established once and forever. He will always be king to me. Master, lord over my life. And there's no way to say that apart from the Holy Spirit of God moving into us. When we wrestle with the authority, the annoying authority of God that makes us do all the stuff like that song said, the opposite of what my heart wants to do is forgiveness. And when it's always a fight, you begin to discern which spirit is really alive in you. The presence of God's Holy Spirit in a person is manifested one way, and that is the degree to which we claim and live, Jesus is my Lord. It's the primary way that we grow spiritually, is that we acknowledge Jesus Christ as our King, so that as we do what He commands, our lives start looking more like the character of the kingdom He wants to establish in the world. So that our lives will be marked by greater justice, greater love, greater mercy, more truth, more generosity, more self-control. All the virtues we love to see in others and in ourselves will happen as we acknowledge Jesus to be our king. And if you forfeit that, if you reject him as king and begin living for yourself, what you will see very quickly is the other kingdom's characteristics start popping up in your life. Bitterness. Envy, greed, dissatisfaction, short-temperedness, punishing the ones you love. Discontentment with the life that you have. No peace. 
violence, treachery, deceit. Those things pop up as we reject Jesus as king and decide I'll do a better job of following my own heart. Follow your, try it as an experiment. Don't try it as an experiment. It'll, it'll ruin your life. But you'll see when you know, you've, you've all got friends who don't have time for God or any other authority. I obey only me. Take an honest assessment. Don't judge them, but just step back and look at their lives and tell me what you see really happening. It's likely a heart that cannot be happy unless everything is going its way. Let me give you one last practical implication of this. We must be born again. We don't make ourselves Christians, but a new birth, a new thing has to happen in us to make a dead heart come alive. And that dead heart and that new life will grow as we acknowledge Jesus as king and live the way he commands. Finally, we also must learn to be patient because the frustrating thing about the kingdom of God is it is both here now and not yet fully seen. It's here now, but not yet fully seen. Look what it says. Let both crops dwell together. I think I've got the wrong verse up there. Now, this is what happens when you cut and paste. I want to look at verse 30. It says, let both grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He says that for now, I'm just going to leave everything alone. I know that I've planted my wheat in the field. I know that the enemy has planted the wheat. It's not always easy to distinguish between the two now, but I'm going to leave it be, and one day, harvest time will come. And on that day, like I've said several times, reality will be split in half, and everything will be decided on that day. What we see now, only vaguely and in part, will be seen with crystal clarity on that day. Everyone will give an account for the life that they lived. Everyone will identify ultimately and truly with one kingdom or the other. And that identification will be made for us, not by our own confession. But is a kingdom that is rising so incrementally. Every day we make choices that either manifest God's kingdom or wave the white flag and surrender to the other kingdom. Every day we're doing that. It's very similar to trench warfare in World War I. Have any of you studied that? Guys would die bleeding and, and it was horrible violence all to gain 30 feet a day back and forth. Men would die for another 100 feet only to have other men die to lose another 150. And this was the nature of it. It was everything happened right at the front and it was this back and forth struggle day after day after day after day. That's the way it can often feel to live as a Christian in a fallen world where the kingdom of God is not yet fully seen. What does that mean for us practically? What it means for us practically is this. Not everybody who torments you or mistreats you will get justice now. I know, I, I, I really wish it. I wish sometimes I just go, Lord, just, you know, kind of show them, like, what's up? Like, show them what time it is. And they're like, and they get zapped. And they go, oh, man, darn, my bad. I forgot, you actually serve the one true living God, and I'm an idiot. Um, thanks for that reminder, God, that it doesn't pay to oppose you. Don't you just wish that it would work that way? You're arguing with your kids and they swear that they're right. You're like, oh, you just don't know. Something happens. They're like, oh, dad's right. 
I got to go with God on this one. But it's not that way. Here's the hard reality, and we don't make light of it. There are people who have done very, very much wrong to you. And you're waiting for the day when leprosy comes or everything they touch turns to poop, and it doesn't happen. Sometimes, even more frustratingly, it seems like after they mistreat you, life gets better for them. They're on the evil life improvement system. And you don't understand it. Why does the sun shine on them too? Why do they get victory in this little skirmish and all other good things? Here's the other truth. Not every good thing you do will be recognized or acknowledged today either. Some of us have bled out for this kingdom. We are unsung heroes. Nobody in this church has any idea what it has cost you to honor the Lord in your life. You're not the kind to stand up here and give a testimony, but God sees, and yet part of the the frustration is no one has any idea. And you wonder, even if people don't acknowledge you, will God throw me a bone? I've worked so hard to be a good husband. Can I just have one good day where she treats me well? Just one good day. Please, God, just one. I don't need a hundred. I just need one. When will that day come? And three, four, five years pass, and you're still waiting because this is a kingdom that isn't coming right away. Without patience, you will not see this kingdom in its fullness. Not every good change we fight for in this world will come to fruition as fast as we'd like it to. Some of us have worked tirelessly against illiteracy, poverty, disease, human suffering, injustice, trafficking, marital collapse, child neglect and abuse. We have worked so hard at these things, and yet what we find is nothing is changing. It feels like we're running on a treadmill, moving forward just to stand still. And we wonder, is it worth it to fight for godly things when nothing ever seems to change? And to all this, Jesus says, you have to have faith to live in this kingdom. There will be little little victories you will see that will remind you God is at work. But this kingdom we live in and we live for will not be seen fully until one day harvest comes. And make no mistake, the fate of those who did not belong to God is very different than the fate of those who belong to him. Look what it says. What is happening? He says, at the end of the age, all the sons of the evil ones, the weeds, who appeared to be in the same place as everyone else, but did not belong to the kingdom of heaven. They will be gathered up and thrown to a place, and it seems very punitive. It seems very like punishment-oriented. They're going to get cast into fire. But the truth is this. They are getting the infinite, ultimate expression of the reality they long to live in. They are now facing an eternity exactly what they wanted, free of God, completely. He's no longer going to mess with them, bother them, tell them anything, dictate anything. For eternity, those who did not belong to Christ will get a chance to live out eternity free of God and everything God stands for. The world, the kingdom they will live in for eternity is the ultimate expression of every value, everything that this kingdom of the world stands for. 
It will be unbridled greed, unrestrained violence. It says of Satan in John chapter 8 that when he lies, he is speaking his native language. You will not even know what truth is anymore. No one will be kind. No one will be merciful. No one will serve another. No one will forgive. Every day you will be confronted with everything you've done wrong and reminded of it again and again. The torment of hell is that a person gets that freedom from God they thought they wanted. Get off of me. And he says, okay. You'll never have me or anything I stand for again. This is what hell is. It's the world people make away from God times a million. That is hell. We don't any longer get the illusion of all coexisting happily in the same field because what God says is every good thing that happened was my kingdom. Every act of kindness, every truth that was told was my kingdom all along. And today you are now cast forever into that other kingdom. He doesn't say that with glee. He's not vengeful in it. His heart breaks. He bled so that others would not have to face that. But God's compassion does not erase his justice. It doesn't erase his truth. This is how life works. This is what reality is. For those who remain his to the end, here's the glorious, victorious decree in Revelation 11, that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. One day the justice that you longed for and did not see will come. The person who you could not convince of their sin will one day see with absolute clarity and eternal regret that you were right. You won't feel like dancing that day, but you will know that justice has been served. No one dodges justice forever. That is the promise of the return of Christ and of the harvest. You can dodge it only so long, but one day we will all give an account for our lives. And the wheat and the weeds will have very, very different destinies forever and ever. So I ask you the same question that was on Jesus' heart that day talking to the large crowds. Let's for the moment cast off this spell our world gives us that we're all just people and everything's so vanilla and everything is just whatever. And for a moment hear the voice of God that says, no, 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 no. That is not at all the way it works. There is one kingdom that is mine and one kingdom that is my enemy's. And you today belong to one of those kingdoms. Which one is it? Which kingdom is growing in you? Which kingdom are you growing in? It's not about what you believe. It's not about the moral choices you make. But ultimately, it's about the life that is bursting out of you. What does that life tell you? Before I wrap up, let me just give you this last thought. Peter lends us one other perspective on why the kingdom is so slow to arrive in its fullness. 
is that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That at the harvest, there is either yes or no, and lots of regret or lots of joy. There's no timeout, no pause, no redo. And so until the harvest comes, we have an opportunity ourselves to come to repentance, come home to the kingdom of heaven, and lead others to do that as well. It's one of the few reasons we can be thankful that the kingdom is slow in dawning in fullness, is that he gives us time to fully exercise the mercy and love of God in the lives of others. With that, I want to invite us just to bow our heads. Let's just pray briefly together. You know, I really believe that the most effective weapon of God's enemy is not an overt attack. It's not a full frontal assault. It's this sort of subtle way that he has caused everyone to just think so little of everything that's important. To hear a sermon like the one I just gave and go, why is that guy so agitated? Why is he so dramatic? What's he so upset about? Isn't life just life? Aren't we just people? Can't we all just kind of whatever? And there's a side of me that so wishes that's just how it worked. It would be so easy, wouldn't it? Live and let live. Eat some yummy stuff. Have some fun times. And just ease into glory forever. But that is not reality. And so today, Jesus presents you with truth. There is a kingdom that is his. And there is a kingdom that is his enemies. And he calls you to figure it out. Which kingdom are you in? Which birth are you living in? Which life courses through you? Don't answer that because of a historical event, a prayer you repeated in a camp in the summer of 86. Answer it by looking at your life today. Are you actually alive? That's how you know you're born again. Are you alive? If you're not, don't despair. You at least now know what the issue is. God loves to make dead things come to life. He will do it if you ask him. It's better to know you're dead and ask to be resurrected than to pretend you're alive only to find you're dead all along. So which is it going to be? I'm going to leave you to it. We'll pray together together for a few minutes and then we'll sing some songs and I'll come back up and I'll close this out. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.